chapter 9, verses 1 through 23. My title for us this morning is simply, I once was blind. I once was blind. By way of introduction, let me tell you a little bit about this organ we call an eye. It is, in my opinion, a testament to the fact that we aren't accidental reactions to a fortuitous event. We've been designed and created. The intricacies of the eye tell me that we have an intricate creator. The eye is an amazing organ, as I said. Here are a few things for us to consider. If the human eye was digital, it would have 576 megapixels. Your iPhone is 12. And you're amazed by that. Or if you have an off-brand. Eyes begin development a mere two weeks after conception. A mere two weeks after conception, the eyes begin development. 80% of our memories are determined by what we have seen. Eyes are able to process 36,000 pieces of information every single hour. Eye muscles are the most active muscles in the human body. Fingerprints have 40 unique characteristics, but the iris has 256, which is why eye scanning is becoming more and more popular. The eye and sight is an amazing testimony to God's creative abilities. This is why blindness, say amen if you're listening, this is why blindness is such a tragedy. But there's more than one kind of blindness. There are people who can see, people who can see well, people whose vision is 2020, but who can't see the truth, people who can't see reality. You see, there is a spiritual reality that we can't escape outside of God's deliverance. And outside of God's deliverance, we can't even see the need for that escape. In the first place, Paul once wrote these words, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded. Has what? Has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. To keep them from what? Seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God has said, let the light shine out of darkness. And he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful passage that speaks to us on a number of levels. But this morning, it speaks to us on this level. There is a blindness that is spiritual in nature and not physical in nature only. So I want to get started this morning with our first point, which is this, the healing. We're in John chapter 9 again, verses 1 through 7, the healing. 
As he passed by, it says, he saw a man blind from birth. Now first, let's get the context. Jesus, after a seriously intense debate back and forth with the Jews, probably the Pharisees, has gone out of the temple in chapter 8, verse 59, a reference that we decided last week says something more than simply geographical location. It makes a statement about Jesus' mission. He went out of the temple. One author writes, quote, the, tabernacling, uh, the tabernacle's crowd and the Jewish leadership failed to recognize the divine visitation that had come to them. That's what's really going on here. So although 859 is a reference to Jesus' location, it's more than that. It's a reference to his movement toward humanity outside the temple. And so here we are in chapter 9. Verse 1 again, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And he went, and he washed, and he came back. How? Seeing. First, I want you to note that Jesus sees the man when no one else can. Jesus sees the man when no one else can. Oh, what a blessing. What a blessing to know that Jesus sees us. What a blessing to know that at our worst, when we're at our lowest, when we haven't even the guiding hand we so desperately need and we feel lost, when we're invisible to the world, Jesus sees us. How many people walk past this man without seeing him? I want you to note, first of all, that when no one else sees him, Jesus sees him. Now, after Jesus sees the man, then his disciples see the man. And isn't that the order? We see Jesus. We catch Jesus. And as Jesus does, so we do. The problem that so many unbelievers have with Christians today is that this isn't the paradigm. We've got Christians that don't sound like Christians. We've got Christians that don't act like Christians. We've got Christians that don't live like Christians. Orthodoxy is what is expected. Let me say this again. Orthodoxy is what is expected. Orthodoxy means straight doctrine. And when people speak to Christians, they ask, what do you believe? Not because they don't know, but because they want to see if you hold to the truth. The truth of the Bible, biblical doctrine, biblical theology, biblical ethics, and not some diluted version of the biblical truth and biblical doctrine. I really don't think that people ask Christians, what do you believe, because they don't know. I think they know. I think they ask because they want to see if you know and if you're willing to hold to it, even when it's inconvenient. Second, I want you to note that Jesus knows the purpose. Jesus knows 
the purpose. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus responds, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be shown in him. This is a poor interpretation of the Deuteronomic law of retribution, as we sometimes refer to it. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, talks about blessing as a result of godliness. And then from 15 and following, it talks about cursing as a result of ungodliness. So it's a principle there in the Old Testament. But that teaching in Deuteronomy isn't individual as much as it is national. As a nation, if Israel was godly, there was blessing. As a nation, if Israel was ungodly, then there was cursing. It's simple. There was judgment if that was the case. Ezekiel chapter 18 clears up this point for us when God says, The soul that sins shall surely die. In other words, I'm not judged for my father and my mother's sins. I'm judged for my own. You get that? We have a tendency to say, I've had this curse passed down to me. No, you haven't. You're being judged for your own stuff. When God says, as I will visit sins for the third and fourth generation, he's not saying he's going to visit my great-grandchildren with judgment because of my sins. He's saying that if my great-grandchildren do the sin that I'm doing, God will be there to judge it. There's a big difference between those two things. So when the disciples come and they go, this guy's blind, so who sinned? His parents or him? And Jesus says, neither. Some of you need to hear this. Amen if you're listening. In this life, you will have problems. It might not have anything to do with a spiritual warfare. You know, when the AC leaks and we're like, the devil is against us. I will overcome, or we get a flat tire, Satan, not today, you know, maybe it's just a nail. Sometimes we over-spiritualize things, right? There is such a thing as a physical reality, and we have to deal with it. In this particular case, what Jesus is saying is his blindness isn't a result of his parents, and his blindness isn't a result of him. His blindness is a result of God. God put this man on the earth blind for today so that the glory of God might be shown in this man's life. Third, I want you to note that ministry happens within a limited amount of time. I want you to note that ministry happens within a limited amount of time. Of time. Look at what Jesus says again in, in verse 4. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Did you get that? There is a limited amount of time to do ministry. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming, and we can't do the works anymore at that point. Listen. We don't have forever. We don't have forever. We don't have an immeasurable amount of time to do and to be who God has called us to be and to do. 
The truth of the matter is, is we procrastinate. We put off what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be. Love what St. Augustine said, God will always have grace for your repentance, but he doesn't always have time for your procrastination. Some of you all said you'll do it next week. You'll talk to your son or your daughter next week. You'll talk to your neighbor next week. You'll come to church and worship and grow next week. Do not put off to tomorrow what God has called you to do today. There is coming a time when that opportunity will be lost to you. And then there will be no more tomorrow. There will be no more next time. We have to resolve to make the best of the time that God has given to us. Not tomorrow, but today. Finally, I want you to note that the miracle is more important than the method. I want you to note that the miracle is more important than the method. Verse 6 says, having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And he went and washed and came back seeing. The miracle is more important than the method. In the Gospels, when we read about the life and ministry of Jesus, we see that Jesus healed people miraculously, but we don't see that he always heals, him, heals them the same way. He performs miracles differently. In Matthew chapter 9, for example, Jesus simply touches two blind men, and they receive their sight. Here's the point. Say amen if you're listening. The miracle is what's important. Not the method. The miracle is what's important, not the method. Methods change. Methods are not as important as the miracle. We cannot put methods before miracles. We cannot say God only works this way. God only works that way. Nope, that's not true. God works in a variety of ways because God is not bound by our preferences, not bound by our prescriptions. God works God's way. And though he works through us and in us and around us, we cannot relegate God's activities to one, two, or three styles. That's why Jesus, when he healed people, always did it differently so that people would not go around spitting in mud. Well, this is the way Jesus did it. I swear I put the same amount of spit in the mud as he did, but it's not working. But that's what we do. We take a rigid approach to ministry because we think the method is what saves. The method is not what saves, church. It's a miracle of God when people get saved. Sometimes it's because of this song or that song. doesn't matter if it was written in 2018 or 1818. God uses all kinds of music. Doesn't matter if I'm in a suit or not. God uses me in spite of me, not because of me. God performs miracles every day of the week, not just on Sunday. He doesn't need a method in which to perform his miracles. God performs miracles in spite of methods. But I also want you to note this, just finally, before we move on to our second point, and that is this. When God performs miracles among men, he always gives them something to do. 
When God performs miracles among men, he always gives them something to do. When the woman is in the crowd and Jesus is walking by and she has the issue of blood, whatever that is, and, 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 and she thinks to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, and she reaches out by faith and touches the hem of a garment, and that's it, she's healed. Jesus goes, somebody touched me. Somebody touched me. There's a thousand people around you right now. Who, no, 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 no. Somebody approached me with faith. And I think something has happened miraculously. But when Jesus heals men, he almost always gives them something to do. I need you to hear me now. Men need something to do. A man who is not busy is a dangerous man. A man whose hands are not consecrated with the work of the Lord is a dangerous man. A man who sits around multiple hours within the day doing things like video games is a dangerous man. A man who sits around looking for another hobby instead of a God-glorifying work is a dangerous man. A man who can't find something to do for the Lord is a dangerous man. Luke's Gospel Ten lepers come up to Jesus, and Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. Chapter 5, wash yourself in the pool. Here in chapter 9, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. I might be pressing this a little bit, but I don't think I'm pressing it that much. I don't think it's unusual that God gives men something to do because God has created us to be doers, not still bodies. Oh, I think I'm pressing a button because everybody got real quick and quiet. Because some of the men have their arms crossed and they're going, I'm not going to do anything and you can't make me. <laughs> it's okay. Some of the wives are sitting next to you right now going, I wish my husband would do something. Some of the kids are going, I wish my dad would do something. Do not miss this point, church. When Jesus comes in your life, he does not call you to vacation. Do something. And as men, we must do something. We must lead. We must demonstrate. And I'm not talking about what makes you happy, honey. I'm talking about, babe, I really feel like this is important. Can we talk about this so that we can come to an agreement? I'm talking about leadership. I'm talking about decision making. I'm talking about vision casting for your family so that your family can be all that God is calling it to be. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, guys. Do what God is calling you to do. That's the healing. Whenever Jesus does something huge, there's always an interrogation that follows. That's our second point this morning, the interrogation. That's from verses 8 to 23. Now, the actual miracle, or after the actual miracle, we turn a corner to the response. And we begin to get what I'm calling the interrogation. Now, 
just a little caveat here. The rest of the interrogation will be covered next week in our second part because this chapter is pretty long. We're merely starting it this morning. But we begin in verse 8. If you look at it with your eyes, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some would say, it's him. But others said, well, it's not him. And he kept saying, I'm him. Listen, first thing I want you to note under this point, the interrogation is this. There was a change. There was a change. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, is this not the man who we saw sitting and begging? Interesting how the people who knew him before could tell that Jesus had done something in this man's life to change him. I think you missed it. I'm going to say it again. Isn't it interesting how the people who knew him before could tell that Jesus had done something in this man's life? He was blind, but not anymore. He was a beggar, but not anymore. Because God had done something in his life. And what a shame it is when Christian people act as if they've never met Jesus. What a shame when the people who knew us before don't see the difference. When we curse like we always did, we act like we always did, when we avoid worship like we always did, or when we think like we always did because we don't read the Bible like we always didn't. This change is not something that happens by default. This is a change that God does from the inside out. But once God has come to live within us, he calls us to work with him. It's a process. And he calls us to worship. He calls us to read. He calls us to pray and meditate. He calls us to fellowship. And as often as we don't do those things, that's how often we are forfeiting the change. These people, his neighbors, they saw him different. They saw him different. He wasn't blind and he wasn't begging. There was a noticeable change. And this man knows it too, what's more. While everyone is debating as to whether or not it's really him, the mere fact that they don't want to believe, that's the real issue. They just don't want to believe. They, it isn't that they can't recognize him. They recognize him. They're like, but, but he's seeing, so it can't be him. They just don't want to believe, so they're dealing with this. This guy says in verse 9, trust me, it's me. It's still me, but a different me. Amen? <laughs> it's still me but a different me. That phrase suggests that he's insisting in the Greek over and over again. Trust me, it's me. Guys, it's me. It's me. Listen, it is me. He's the guy, and he himself knows it. So there was a change. But secondly, under interrogation, I want you to know this. Not only was there a change, but there was a testimony. Not only was there a change, but there was a testimony. And I want you to note something. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't what? It wasn't complicated. And listen, it wasn't theological. It wasn't what? It wasn't theological. It was simple. It was black and white. 
He simply says in verse 11, look at it with your eyes. Verse 11, he says, the man called Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes. He said to me, go to Siloam and wash, which I did. I washed and I came back seeing. Simple. Not theological, not complicated. Tell us what happened. I can't tell you what happened. All I can tell you is he told me to put the mud on my eyes. He put mud on my eyes. I went to the pool of Siloam. I rinsed. I can see. I came back seeing. I can't tell you everything else. I can just tell you that Jesus did something in my life. Some of you are shying away from the opportunities to tell, you, tell people what Jesus has done in your life because you don't know what Jesus didn't do in your life, but Jesus is not telling you to talk to people about what you don't know. He's telling you to talk to people about what you do. Don't worry about the amount of it. Don't worry about the complexities of it or the simplicities of it. Will you just tell and let God do with it what he will. We're seeing a miraculous act here because of spit and mud. That's disgusting. But you understand what's happening here, right? In the beginning, God created man from the dust of the ground. And Jesus bends over and takes up dust of the ground and he says, as your creator, I will give you sight. All I can tell you is that I was blind and now I can see. You don't have to have the Bible memorized to tell people what Jesus has done in your life. But has Jesus done something in your life? Our testimonies are as unique as snowflakes. No two are the same. Your testimony is nothing like mine. Mine is nothing like yours. But the real question isn't whether or not they're effective. The real question is whether or not we have one to share with others. And if we do, are we familiar with it? Enough that we can tell someone who might ask us in a trying situation or in a difficult circumstance. And we say, listen, man, God's made a huge difference in my life. And I might not have all the answers to your situation, but can I pray for you? I know God's done great things in my life. Maybe God will do something in your life too. Can we function on an everyday basis with our testimonies being an integral part of our lives? And we're going to learn later that Jesus isn't done with this man just yet. He's healed him physically. He hasn't healed him spiritually yet. That's in verse 38. That will be next week. The story's still develop, developing. But eventually, the people bring these, this man to the Pharisees. After this whole debate goes on, he says, listen, I am the man. He told me to wash. I couldn't see. I can't see. That's as much as I know. Jesus healed me. And they said, well, we don't want to hear any more about this. We're taking you to the Pharisees because, you know, everybody loves a good spiritual tattletale. You know, when you do something that isn't the way it's always been done, well, that's not the way we've always done it. It's not about the method, though. It's about the miracle. Amen? It's not about the method. God calls the man. God gives a man the mission. The method comes after that. The method is not as important as the man God calls and the mission that he gives to him. But we like to think about method, and then we go try to figure out ministry. Or if we have bounce houses... And ice, you know, snow cones and free hot dogs. And so there's a part, there's a part for all of that. 
But at what point do we exegete the Word of God? At what point do we preach the gospel? Because that's what changes people, not hot dogs. I'm glad to know that when we do hot dogs here, we get good hot dogs. Because Kristen's particular about her hot dog. Everybody likes a good hot dog, but the hot, do hot dogs have never saved anybody. It's the gospel that saves. And so what's happening here is the method isn't what they're familiar with, but they see the miracle, so they take the man like spiritual tattletales do, and they take him to the Pharisees, and they go, and they go this guy's been healed. Somebody say something to somebody. You know, Mom, what? Julie won't stop reading her Bible. You know, spiritual tattletaling. Why the trouble? Simply because, as J.C. Ryle once wrote, they were determined not to believe. They were determined not to believe. And it's exasperating to them that every time they turn the corner with their despite for Jesus, they see him do another work. That leads to only one conclusion. God is working through this man. He must be who he says he is. Why were they determined not to believe? Simply because they were blind too. Spiritually blind. And spiritually blind people don't get Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Because they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You ever wonder why you have this great, this great conversation with someone who's not a believer? Maybe they're part of a conversation at the dinner table or something, and the Christians are like all like fired up about it, and the other people are like, I don't get it. This is why. The Spirit of God is absent. Paul Tripp once wrote, unlike physical blindness, where you know you are blind. Spiritually blind people are blind to their own blindness. They are blind, but they think they see quite well. Spiritual blindness happens at the intersection of the deceptiveness of sin and the delusion of self-knowledge. Oh, I see, fine. This leads to the final point, and that is this, finally, in verses 18 to 23. I want you to look at how often People who can't see deny the sight of others. I want you to look at how often people who can't see deny the sight of others. The Jews did not believe, it says, that he had been blind. So they call his parents, and they put pressure on them too. And this was a sticky situation, John tells us, because if they say they believe in Jesus, there's already, there's already been a new rule passed. If you become a follower of Jesus, if you say that Jesus is the Son of God and Messiah, you can't come to synagogue. And synagogue, for a Jewish person, is a central aspect to life. It's their educational process. It's like church, if you would. And we already know that this is a problem because we've learned on a couple of occasions that there's already a plot out to kill Jesus. So they don't want to deal with this Jesus guy too much anymore. And they're putting restrictions on anybody who would have the gall 
to worship him for who he is. Let me close by simply saying this. There is a cost for following Jesus. There is a cost for following Jesus. Now today, we don't have the same kinds of costs. You can come to church as freely as you like. But I'm thinking maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need somebody to tell us we're not allowed to go to church. So we can say, oh yeah, watch this. So we can take seriously the worshiping of God as it ought to be. But be that as it may, let me close by saying the eye is an amazing organ. And it testifies to the amazing creative ability of our amazing creator. But this is not about physical sight. This is about spiritual sight. And if we can trust Jesus to create sight in a man who has never seen, then we can, cre- then we can trust Jesus Excuse me, to create sight in those who are spiritually blind too. The only question we have to answer is, are we willing to say that we are blind? Are we willing to say, Jesus, without you I cannot see the truth of the gospel. I cannot see the work of the Heavenly Father. I cannot see the reality of my situation or my circumstances. I need you to do in me what only you can do because I cannot do it myself. Teacher, who sinned? Him or his parents? That he was born blind Neither, Jesus says, this is done so that the work of God might be displayed among you. I'm wondering what work of God needs to be put on display today. I'm wondering who among us God is working on. If it's you, I pray that you won't be stiff. I pray that you'll be humble. If God is calling you, so to speak, to go and wash, I pray that you'll do it. If God is calling you to repent and trust him, I pray that you do it. We're so early in the gospel, John chapter 9, we have another handful of chapters to go. But we're already seeing the reality of Jesus as Messiah in the lives of those who believe versus those who don't. On which side of that equation do you find yourself? Let me invite you to pray.